Well, good morning. We're going to continue this morning. This is part two of the little mini-series within a series, I guess, that uh, we've been looking at in Luke's Gospel. The broader series has been about the Word made flesh and how Luke portrays that so vividly for us in the opening chapters of his Gospel. But here, towards the end, we're seeing Jesus call people. We talked about how he calls people to repentance and faith. And last week we began to look at how he calls his disciples to follow him. And so this morning I want to look at Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 42, which continue the, the lesson that Jesus began teaching that we looked at last week. We're going to go to 42. There's more, of course, that he teaches after that, uh, but we'll skip over that as we continue to look at the, the Word made flesh in the coming next couple sermons. But before us this morning is Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 42. Let me read that for us. As always, a reminder that this is the very Word of the living God. Luke six twenty-seven. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take out the log, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and challenging word for us this morning. As we come before it, let's turn once again to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, again, we ask your blessing 
bless your word now as it goes out and fulfill the promise that you made that it goes out and does not return to you empty, but instead accomplishes all that you purpose for it and is successful in the things for which you sent it. May that be true here this morning. For us, we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us. Fill us with your spirit to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what you have for us to learn this morning. Make your word a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, so that we may walk according to what it reveals to us. All this again we ask in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Well, again, I I was going to skip over these parts of Luke where Jesus is doing kind of ethical teaching. But then I, as I said last week, I kind of saw this as being part of the the call that the Word speaks out to His people. Beginning with the call to repentance and faith, continuing with the call to follow Him, to be His disciples, as we began to look at last week, and then, God willing, next week, we will see the Word calling us to new life. So we're continuing in that this morning, but I want to do something a little different. And before we even get into Luke... I want to go back to Matthew chapter 5, which is the the parallel passage for this section. Um, Try to go through it as quickly as possible. Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. They call Luke 6 the Sermon on the Plain. And (laughs) the hard-hearted people of the world say, ha-ha, contradiction in Scripture. And we look at them and go, Jesus had a three-year ministry. He probably spoke the same sermon gave the same lesson to different crowds at different times in different places. That's very common. It's an easy answer. So here we have a longer sermon from Jesus recorded by Matthew. And I just want to highlight some of the things that are in here as we go through because it's a powerful message from Jesus to those around him where he takes things that they have heard and says, basically, you heard wrong. Here's what I say to you as the Son of God, as the Messiah, the fulfillment of prophecy, which is Matthew's, one of Matthew's main themes. So he goes up onto a mount and he begins with pronouncing blessings. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, the meek. And this is a very similar section to what we had in Luke. Uh, not blessed because of your condition, but blessed because you have something that's so much better. In fact, Peacemakers are sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake have the kingdom of heaven itself. You're blessed when others revile and persecute you. Your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So look to that greater reward. Look to that greater promise that is to come. Those who are consumed with this life are those to be pitied, as Jesus says in Luke 6. He talks about them being salt and light in the world around them to uh, bring good to those around them. Then he says about himself, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. In Matthew 5.18, he says, Not an iota, not a dot of the law will pass away until all is accomplished. Not one part of the law will pass away. Whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And he calls upon them in a challenge that is daunting. 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Most of us, I think, see that as what we call the first use of the law, the law that's our tutor that takes us by the hand and leads us to Christ because no one can fulfill Matthew 5, verse 20. And then he goes into these series of lessons you have heard, but I say to you. You've heard, do not murder. I say to you, don't even be angry with your brother. You'll be liable to judgment. He gets at the very heart of things. Again, in regard to lust, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, getting to the the motive, the heart of a man or woman. He talks about divorce. Whoever divorces his wife, give him a certificate of divorce. But then he narrows the conditions. You can't just give a certificate of divorce for anything, which is what they were doing, but only for sexual immorality. About oaths, you shall not swear falsely. But I say to you, don't even take an oath at all. And we have plenty of stories from Scripture about those who took oaths unwisely. You've heard it said, and he, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We'll talk about this in relation to the same teaching in Luke 6. Don't retaliate. Don't take vengeance. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go two. If anyone asks from you, do not refuse. Again, You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was the rabbinic teaching from drawn from Leviticus 19, that passage where we get the great command to love your neighbor as yourself, but they took it to mean only your Israelite neighbor. It's okay to hate the Moabites. It's okay to hate the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Egyptians, those lousy Gentile dogs of the earth. Love your Israelite neighbor, but hate your enemy. Jesus says, no, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We'll see this again in Luke 6. Completely turning the, the, the little laws, the little statutes, the little teachings of the Pharisees and scribes on their head, where they were looking at external actions And he gets to the very heart of intention. And the sermon goes on and repeats many of the same ideas throughout the Sermon on the Mount. But what I wanted to get at are those special sections, that theme that runs through the Sermon on the Mount that that does not abolish what the, the law teaches, that doesn't do away with any law, but says what matters is not the external keeping of the law, what matters is where your heart is. People like to say today, well, their heart is good. And we know that the heart is deceitful above all things. We know that not to be true. The only heart that moves in the right direction is the one that has been regenerated and given new life by the Spirit. But what 
Matthew does for us in the Sermon on the Mount and what I think is illustrated as well in Luke 6 that I want to get into this morning, both from last week and, and what we'll see this week, is the idea that what, what ultimately matters, what the key idea is in God giving us his law is not the external keeping of external prescriptions, but our attitude about the law and what it teaches itself. The, the Lord went to the Israelites and said time after time after time, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire steadfast love over sacrifice. It's that idea of a principle in the law, the principle not even to look at someone with lust, the principle not even to, to seek revenge over the external do's and don'ts of a checklist of laws. When Jesus says he became to fulfill the law, he, he means it completely. But here we see another difference between the Old Covenant and the New. We, we talked about how when he called his disciples and set up 12 as apostles, this is part of Jesus saying there's now a new Israel, and these are the new patriarchs of the new Israel. When he was tempted in the desert, he was preparing to cross over into the promised land, not to possess a land, but to possess a people. Here again, he's setting up a new covenant, a better covenant, where the law is written on our hearts, not in a checklist of do's and don'ts, but in a set of principles that guide us into true holiness. We have three principles in this section of Luke 6 that we've been looking at. The first we looked at last week, this idea that followers of Jesus are called to have different priorities. The priorities of heaven, the priorities of the world to come, the kingdom to come. Not be preoccupied with the things of this world. Woe to those who are rich. Woe to those who are full. Woe to those who laugh. Woe to those who are spoken well of, those whose delight is in the things of this world. But blessed are you if you have the kingdom of God. Blessed are you if you are hungry now or if you weep now. You will be satisfied. You will laugh. Rejoice when people hate you. Your reward, again, is great in heaven. Not on this earth, but in the kingdom to come. The kingdom that's here, the kingdom that will be consummated at Christ's coming again. So in this section this morning, two ideas to add to this. The priority of where your focus is on heavenly things or on earthly things. This week we have two basic ideas in all of the sections that we read. Two basic ideas is that we're to love others, love our neighbors, and that extends to our enemies more than ourselves. And then the call not to be judgmental. Two new attitudes to add to the, the focus on heavenly things versus earthly things. So two basic parts. We'll just follow through the two basic sections from 27 to 36 and then 37 to 42 that cover these two basic ideas. So let's talk about loving our enemies. First, a reminder that we've talked
talked about before, I, I really, the more I study the idea of love in Scripture, I'm more and more convinced that the opposite of scriptural love is not what it is in, in necessarily interpersonal relationships or in the world around us. Biblically, the opposite of love is not hate. Or some would say uh, in relationships between people, the, the opposite of love is apathy. And that may be true in certain situations, but biblically speaking, I think the opposite of love is selfishness. Loving myself more than I love you. Because that's the contrast we seem to see over and over again in Scripture. Don't take the best seat, take the worst seat. Don't count yourself first, count yourself last. Think of others more than you think of yourself. Humbly serve those around you, as we saw in great detail in Philippians when we went through that. Biblically, the opposite of love is selfishness. And consider this in relation to the two great commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. A little bit of irony in there. Love others. Love God and love others. We come last. And so, when Jesus says, in verse 27 of Luke 6, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. (laughs) That's a hard command. Love my enemies? I can love my neighbor. I can love my sister, my brother, my parents, my friend, my co-workers. Love my enemies? Yes, that's what he's saying. Love your enemies. How do I do that? He gives us three ways in which we can do that. To do good to those who hate us. Now, they may hate you more because you're being nice to them, but that's what we're called to do anyway. Bless those who curse you. So to those who hate you, to those who do evil things to you, we're to return that hatred with good things. To those who speak evil of us, we're to speak blessing upon them. Quite a contrast. And the third way we can love our enemies is to pray for those who abuse us. Not to strike back. To pray for them. Think of uh, you know, someone we've talked about and prayed for. Uh, Pastor Abedini in in Iran, in in that terrible prison that he's locked up in, being abused. The reports we hear are that he's praying for his abusers, and that's what we're called to do, to love our enemies. Now, these these are interpersonal relationships here. Um, None of this should be taken as saying that uh, those in authority over us have the right to abuse us or or curse us, or anything like that. Uh, Those in authority, those governmental authorities over us, have responsibilities to do what is right. And we can call them to repentance, and we can call them to do what is right. And I think elsewhere in Scripture, we can rise up against them if, if necessary. But to our enemies, our personal enemies, this is personal stuff here, not politics or government. To your enemies, do good, bless them, and pray for them. And then he goes even further, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. This isn't about abuse. This is a, a, an act of, um, of dishonor in this culture. It's not, it's, it's not a fight. It's not a physical encounter. It's, a, it's an insult, a slap in the face. 
So if they've insulted you, let them insult you again. That's hard to do, to, to, to suffer insult and to accept it and to just let it, let it hang there. Give them opportunity to do so again. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs. Begs is not a great translation. It's, it's just more broadly, everyone who asks. He's not talking about mendicants on the side of the road. He's talking about those who have a need. If someone has a need and they ask you to help, help them. Don't withhold your help. And if they take your goods, don't demand them back. And then the, the so-called golden rule. As you wish others would do to you, do so to them. How you want to be treated, that's how you treat others. That's not Dr. Laura or Dr. Phil or some other Oprah-type person giving us you know, sloppy advice on TV or radio. This is, our, this is our Lord saying this to us. And we have to take it very seriously. How do you want to be treated? Treat others the same way. And then he gives a comparison. Look, you're not doing anything if you love people who like you. Sinners do that. You're not doing anything if you lend to those who will pay you back. Sinners do that. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be a different kind of people, salt and light to those around us. Even sinners lend to sinners, he says, to get back the same amount. But you, 35, love your enemies, do good Lend, expect nothing in return. That's so counter to our natural instinct. It's counter to mine. <laughs> and I think it's counter to just about everybody's. This, this is supernaturally divine behavior. This can only be done with the help and aid of the Holy Spirit. to take our minds off our earthly troubles and trials and cursing and hatred, the money we're owed that we're, or that we think we're owed, and consider the greater reward to be sons of the Most High God and to be kind to those who are ungrateful and evil because that's, that's how God is. God is kind to the ungrateful and evil in two ways. First, to us. Kind and grateful to us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive in Christ. He called us to new life. He forgave our sins <laughs> before we even asked. When were you saved? Not when you made a decision. You were saved 2,000 years ago on a cross on a hill outside Jerusalem when your sins were placed on Christ and paid for completely. He's been kind and grateful, or kind to the ungrateful and the evil who he has called and transformed it to be his own. But he's kind to those ungrateful and evil who remain ungrateful and evil as well. That's a hard concept for us to accept. We bicker and fight about this sometimes theologically, but here it is. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And Jesus says that without qualification. 
call it common grace, call it common benevolence, call it what you want, the Most High God is kind to those who are ungrateful and those who are evil, those hard-hearted, stiff-necked rebels who curse his name, he is kind and grateful to. Be merciful, says Jesus, even as your Father is merciful. Now that is radical. We're being called to be followers of Christ, disciples of him. First put your mindset on heavenly, eternal things instead of temporary, earthly things. And then, with that mindset, ignore all the, the, the turmoil and trouble and, and anger and persecution and hatred of your enemies around you and do good to them and be kind to them and be merciful to them. That's what we're called to. Which law is harder to keep? All those details that we read in Leviticus 19? I'd rather do that than this. It's easier. But it pales in comparison. It's, it's, it's been fulfilled. It's, it's, that's the old covenant. We're called to something much more, much more difficult, much more profound. So to have priorities that are above and then to love our enemies. That's our call as believers. And then he goes even further in verses 37 to 42. Again, this is hard. This is difficult to hear and to put into practice. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, put into your lap. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. (laughs) Pagans call that karma. God calls it justice. How you treat others is how he will judge you. That's, That's hard. I don't want to be judged harshly. I want mercy. I want grace. I want forgiveness. We talk about this in Christian circles all the time, and that's how we try to draw people so often into the faith. God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. He, he's rich in mercy. Come and see the God of grace. And that's all true. But Jesus says, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That, brothers and sisters, is a hard lesson. And I'm going to skip over a little bit and go down to the example of the speck and the log. Verse 41. You see the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye. Jesus asked that as a question. Why do you do this? Well, it's because (laughs) when we look at other people, we see logs. We love to see the logs in our brother's and sister's eyes. We love to criticize. We love to pick. We love to to judge. We love to condemn. We love to to put down those around us. We see logs all over the place. We magnify the tiny little speck in their eye into a log and forget that our vision is clouded by the humongous log in our own eye. How can we be good judges if we can't even see the log that's in our own eye 
and see that it's so much bigger than the speck in our, in our brother or sister's eye? How can we measure it out rightly if we can't even see correctly? And so Jesus calls us to, to better vision. Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. How can you say this when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. Is this not what the world calls us, hypocrites? Because we don't see the logs in our own eyes, but we're picking at the things we see in their eyes. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, Again, non-believers look at a section like this and say, Oh, you Christians, you shouldn't judge others. That's not true. Jesus is going to teach the crowds in John 7.24 and in other places that we are to judge with right judgment. Even in Leviticus, judge rightly. Don't use false measures. Don't use false weights. Judge rightly. What he's getting at is that judgmental attitude that we have. How we like to pick on others and fail to see our own sin. Judge, judging rightly begins with judging ourselves rightly. Judging ourselves rightly <laughs> begins with, that's where Calvin starts in his institutes, isn't it? Knowing ourselves, knowing our sin, knowing who we are in relationship to a, a holy creator God humbling ourselves, confessing our sin, admitting it, and seeking to work and strive for holiness in our own lives before we begin worrying about and criticizing and judging others. And if we did this, if people saw us as humble, if people saw us as being willing to acknowledge and admit our own sins and failures, They can't call us hypocrites because we're being honest with them. Authentic as the lingo is today. And those who refuse to do this, he describes with a parable in verses 39 and it goes into 40. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they... Will they not both fall into a pit? Well, yes. (laughs) Watch a Three Stooges movie. How stupid is it for a blind person to lead a blind person? And and that's where he's getting at again in the the comparison of of a log and a speck. Here you are, he's saying, with a log in your own eye, you can't even see, and you're trying to lead someone with a speck in their own eye. You're going to lead them right into a pit. Who are you? Get vision, get clarity before you think to lead others. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. This is what Jesus is calling us to. Be like me. He is the example that he holds up before us himself. His sights are on other things. He loved his enemies. While we were enemies, God loved us. The enmity between God and man is taken away in Christ. 
that hatred. And he did not come to judge, because as he told them, told Nicodemus in John 3, the world stands judged already. The world is condemned already. The sins of the world condemn, the world condemns itself by its own sin. The world judges itself by its own sin. It stands judged for who it is. We don't need to come and judge. We need to come and save. (laughs) Ambassadors of the, the Savior himself. Take the logs out of our own eyes so we can help save others from falling into the pit. He calls us to repent, to believe, to follow him. Have that heavenly focus. Love even those who are our enemies without judging. And if we do this, now we are able to lead others. Now we are able to disciple and admonish and exhort and witness to others in a productive and a fruitful way. Because that's how Jesus did it. We are following after his example, becoming like our teacher. Not by setting up rules of law-keeping and pointing to our own self-righteousness, not by being selfish, not by being greedy or focusing on the things of this world, but by following our Savior with clear eyes and clear sight who we are and where we're going. What are you leading people to? Who are you leading people to? So some brief lessons that I want to touch on as we close. One is a a, a real key idea that I think we have to understand or, or at least discuss when we compare Old Covenant with New Covenant. This, this idea of principle-based living versus prescription-based living. What I mean by prescription is not what you get from your doctor. <laughs> what I mean are rules and, and regulations, the fundamentalist, legalist do's and don'ts. That's not the call of the New Covenant. When we do analysis and underwriting where I work, we don't have a little checklist of things that we have to check off to determine who's a good borrower. We could do that. It's easy. But it's lazy. And you make bad decisions. So we try to analyze. We try to understand. We try to look at principles that guide to a more effective decision-making. The new covenant is, is principle-based. The laws are not done away with. Don't get me wrong. The laws remain. The laws stay. We understand that some are fulfilled and pass away for various reasons. But the the moral law does not go away. But what we focus on instead is the principle embedded in the moral law. Take a a real trivial example. The state of Montana, big. Hardly anybody lives there. Everybody's spread out in Connecticut. A whole bunch of people packed into a tiny space. What law should we pass for a speed limit? The same in Connecticut as, as Montana? No, that's idiotic. You can't go 90 miles an hour through Connecticut. You'll be in Rhode Island pretty soon. <laughs> but you can go 90 miles across Montana and not see a person. It's not the law that makes the difference. It's the principle. The principle is drive safely to preserve and to protect life. 
That's the principle. And you make prescriptions as appropriate for the, for the situation. So we focus not on the details of the Old Testament law as Christians, which is where we often get hung up. I read Leviticus 19 partly because it has love your neighbor in there, but also partly because it's got all those weird laws about clothing made from two kinds of materials or fields sold with two kinds of seed or tattoos or, or scarring oneself for the dead. We get hung up on those things and fail to look at the, at the principles behind them. The principles is what matters. And that's where we learn how to, how to follow Christ. And if we focus on principles, then I think it helps us teach children. It's, I'm a parent. It's easy as a parent to give your kids a list of simple do's and don'ts. But I, have I taught them morality? Ah, I've taught them a bunch of rules to follow. I haven't taught them to think for themselves. I haven't thought, taught them about what's right and wrong, ethically and morally. I create a bunch of robots. Well, that's not good. But if I focus on principles, love those around you, serve those around you, do good to those around you, and drive those principles from Scripture, then that's a whole, a whole different situation. It's the same for how we teach and admonish and, and disciple one another and hold each other accountable. It has implications for how we witness to the world around us. Now, we're going to be hated. We can't avoid that. But if we're living the way Jesus calls us to live, as his disciples, as his followers, like our teacher, People who hate nice people look stupid. <laughs> and most people can see that. But people who hate, people who hate, well, people are going to go, well, let them fight. They deserve one another. The world around us mostly sees us as those who hate. We need to change that negative witness to a positive witness. And I think it helps create a more receptive audience for the message of the gospel, which does change our attitudes, our focus on life, from the things of this world to the eternal things of God. It gives each one of us a personal witness. Each one of us can talk about at some level, in some detail, about the transformation that God has done in our own lives. I used to be like this, but now... This is what God has done for me. I'm not who I used to be. That's a powerful witness to others for, because, one, we're admitting sin and weakness, which they don't think Christians do, and then we're showing them how the power of the gospel has transformed us. Well, that's, that's attractive. Jesus, in the end, is calling his disciples to be like him. That's really what he's getting at again in verse 40. Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That means more than knowing the content of what he teaches. And it means more than following a simple list of commands, of do's and don'ts. What it does mean, in the case of the followers of Jesus Christ, is the call to live a radically different kind 
of life, different than the world around us. Recognizing our own sin, admitting it, hearing and heeding the call to repentance and faith. Recognizing that there is a better perspective on life, and hearing and heeding that call to to love our enemies and not judge others, to see eternal truths rather than temporary earthly ones. There's a book out there. It's selling millions of copies. And it is, it's a bad book. I hope none of you are reading it. Jesus Calling. The word is taken and perverted and twisted to mean new things. You want to know what Jesus is calling you to? We read Romans 12. Last week I referred to 1 Corinthians 13. You can look at the end of Ephesians. You can look here in Luke chapter 6. You can go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus is calling us to. It is tremendously difficult. Counter to every natural instinct I have, and probably you have as well. But by the power of the Spirit, who transforms those who come in repentance and faith, it can be done. Jesus is calling. And it's time to answer. Let's pray. Father, indeed, your call upon our lives, we recognize that it is complete, total. We cannot call you Savior without also calling you Lord. And as our Lord, you command us to do these things. They're not optional for us. But they are so hard. (laughs) This is not the way we think. This is not the way we naturally interact with those around us or think about our situations that we're in. We do think about our pride. We do think about our honor. We do think about our possessions. We focus on the things of this world. We ask that you would truly transform us, renew our minds, as Paul called the Roman church to. Renew our minds by the power of the gospel, the power of the Spirit working within us, the truths of your word planted deep within us. We have a long way to go. And we confess that we, at times, are not as eager to be on that road as we should be. But create in us that desire for holiness, that desire for Christ, and that desire to live as his disciples so that we might be witnesses to those around us. We've all got logs in our eyes, and so we ask that you would give us clarity of vision to see ourselves and the logs in our own eyes and give us the strength and the conviction to remove them and so be able to live with with clear vision in instructing ourselves, but then also instructing and leading others. Again, we confess, we have to repeatedly confess that we cannot do this in our own strength. So again, we ask for the powerful presence of your Holy Spirit in us, upon us, to guide us and lead us in the way that we should go. Maybe not for our own honor, for our own glory, but Lord, for your honor and for your glory only, that the name of Christ might be lifted up before all nations, and that the kingdom might grow and expand, and that many more might come to faith. We ask it in his name. Amen.